Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, I am very psyched because I finally get to interview Dave Nicolette. So, Dave, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Well, it's no problem, Dave. I mean, one Dave to another, it's got to be a good <laughs> thing, right? Yes. Um, so, we're going to talk about a blog post that that Dave posted recently about the idea of being a journeyman and kind of dig into that. But before we do that, Dave, can you explain to folks sort of what your background is and, and kind of how you come to this topic? Well, uh, I started out as a programmer in 1977, and I'm still doing it. And I've extended my interest to areas around programming, like analysis and testing. And, and then when the, uh, the Agile thing started to happen, I got interested in that because it seemed very practical. And so I've been involved with that community, too. So there's not that much to say, really. <laughs> Okay. All right. So you do tend to be somebody who's sort of, in my opinion, a little understated about your background. Um, cause I've known about you for, I had known about you for a long time, I think before we ever actually met. And maybe that was cause our paths almost crossed at Valtech. You, you left, I think about a year before I got there. Um, so we're going to talk about the idea of journeyman and, and what that means. And when you put up the article, the thing I wanted to start with was what you said the title should have been, which was putting the journey into journeyman, taking it out and putting it back in again. Um, can you explain what you yeah. meant with that? Yes. Um, I, I noticed that in software circles, people have started to use this word journeyman, and they, they kind of mean it as a person who is beginning to learn things. They're kind of like they're starting out on their career. And uh, one guy that, I, that I've known a few years, Corey Haynes, he calls himself a software journeyman, and what he means by that is he's on a lifelong journey of learning and improving his skills, which is great. That's a good thing. But it occurs to me that the word journeyman in English doesn't exactly mean that. It doesn't mean that you go on a, on a trip. The word journey comes from the word day. And what it used to mean was a person has been an apprentice to a master, and they've learned enough now that they can go off on their own and open their own shop to do whatever their craft is. This is, you know, a very old word. Yeah, so like if you were a so, blacksmith or something like that back in the day. Exactly. Before computers. Right. So when you're a okay. journeyman, that means you're now eligible to get paid by the day for your work instead of the customer paying the master and then you're learning from the master. That was the model that they had. Well, it turns out there's a guy in our community, a mailer, Paige Jones, who had this notion of how you build your skills up over the years. And he calls it the seven stages of expertise in software engineering. And it goes like uh, innocent would mean that you have no idea what this subject is. And then you go to exposed which means you have some idea what it means. And that doesn't take very long to go from innocent to exposed. But as you progress through these levels, it takes longer and longer because there's more meat to it. Right. And when we were trying to determine what kind of people we wanted leading Agile to build our technical practice, I found this model very useful because in the middle of it are three levels that are practical for our needs. Uh, the apprentice, the practitioner, and the journeyman. Okay. So once we get some work going, we, at the moment we really don't have a place for an apprentice. 
But once we get some work going, we could have apprentices working in a software studio doing development under the supervision of senior people and, you know, providing value for customers that way. Okay. Uh, so to build our technical practice at the moment, we need senior technical people who are senior in multiple skill sets and also good at coaching okay. and also familiar with agile and lean and all of that. And the, uh, the designation that we have for that is a journeyman, someone who's good enough to go out on their own, hang out a shingle and get paid. Sure. And that's some of the people that we've been hiring recently are at that level. So it is actually not a beginner level at all. It's a very advanced level in your career. So these are people that if they wanted to just be full-time consultants on their own, they, they have enough skill and enough experience that they'd probably be able to survive and do fairly well if they wanted to. But I mean, like for me, I, I choose leading agile because it, it, um, it makes my life a lot easier. It lets me do what I want and, and I don't have to take on some of the burden that I would have to if I was independent. And I, and I like that. It lets me, frees me up to focus on the things that are more important to me. Yes. Yeah, uh, I've joined Leading Angel for very much the same reason. And so are two other people that we've hired on recently in this role, okay. uh, the senior technical consultant role. Uh, all of us have been independent before. In fact, I was independent most of the time since 1984. Okay. So being, a, being an employee is actually a little strange for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't really have a feeling like, a, like I have a boss. Right. Because I don't feel like I work for anyone. I feel like I work with people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, leading Agile has a sort of a culture where that works. Yeah. And a lot of companies really don't. So I want to go back to, to the guy, Corey, that you mentioned earlier, and I don't know him, but it seems uh -huh. to me that if you, if I was a software developer, or I mean, I come from a project management background, if I had enough resources that I could take a year off and just float from place to place to learn, I would expect that to be to be able to do that and talk my way into these organizations, I would have to be pretty like badass in terms of my skill set. Like I'm assuming he's, he is on this journey, but he's got enough skill that he can walk into any environment and do okay. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's a he's journeyman in both senses of the word. People. He's a journeyman in the sense that he's got the expertise, but he's also on this, like he's walking the earth, like cane and Kung Fu thing. Yeah. He's a very, very senior guy, you know, and in this model, there are actually two more levels beyond journeyman. And one of the things that makes this model practical in my point, my view is that these next two levels, if we hired people at that level, they yeah. would be useless for client work because it, they're starting to connect dots that they have seen over a 40 or 50 year career. And they, uh, I mean, they, they're going to see squirrels everywhere. They're not going to finish anything yeah. because they're trying to figure out how everything actually works together. They're on, they're on to a bigger question. Yes, exactly. This would be somebody like, for instance, uh, uh, Uncle Bob Martin. Okay. I think of him as a master programmer. Or um, Martin Fowler. Okay. He's, I would think of him as a, the highest level of that model, which is called researcher. But I wouldn't want them on my project developing code because I'd be afraid they wouldn't actually finish anything. Right. They'd get distracted by everything and start writing books about it and stuff, which is great. But it's not what we need right now at Leading Ash. Right. They're not, they're not in there day-to-day -day slugging it out with the team. Now, where would you put somebody like Woody Zool? Uh, Woody, 
he is, uh, he's pro- I'd probably call him a journeyman. Okay. Yeah, he could be very practical. Uh, he could be very hands-on. He, he's he been uh, getting a lot of mileage out of his idea of mobbing. Yeah. And that's great, too. That he's a very practical person. Do you think that people can waver back and forth between like a master and journeyman or a researcher and master and journeyman? Or do you think you well, hit a stage yeah, and then you're there? Anytime you have these sort of arbitrary labels in a model, there's always some boundary area. Okay. So, yeah, you could. I'm sure. One thing that's a, maybe this is just me, but I would be very uh, hesitant about a person who called himself a master. Yeah. And that's, that <laughs> makes it a little challenging to use the model because uh, I think people would be cautious about labeling themselves too high. That yeah. sounds kind of arrogant. Well, it's I, the thing that that struck me when I was reading it. The article was that I, I run across a lot of people who talk about how enlightened they are, and those are always the people that, after five minutes, in, I'm like, "Oh my God, you should never use that word again. <laughs> like you're nowhere near." Um, but but so that was sort of the thing that I wanted to dig into was whether it's master or journeyman. I can totally see how people would misunderstand their own misinterpret their own level of expertise in the same way that so many people are now declaring themselves agile coaches, you know, because as like Mike argued in the last podcast, they did like a you know, two day scrum training and now they think they're a coach. Um, uh-huh. how, yeah. how do you, I mean, for yourself, how do you kind of qualify that? Like, are there ways that you check yourself like to check in and see, am I, where am I on, on this path? Or is it just sort of one of those things that when you're there, you kind of know. Well, I, I do check myself. I, I can't say that I have a, a rigorous method for doing that. But uh, I think that the more you do coaching, if you pay attention to what you're doing and you uh, keep an open mind, then you can, be, you can grow as a coach as well as technically. Uh, but something came up recently that came up like five years ago too. Uh, someone was asking, well, well, we have this team. It's all specialists. How do we begin working more collaboratively? And what I saw in response, this was on social media. Okay. What I saw in response was a a bunch of agile coaches just regurgitating all the stuff they heard in their CSM class about (laughs) collaborative teams and shaped people and all that stuff. Yeah. But the question wasn't that. The question was not, what is the ideal end state? The question was, how do we begin? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the kind of a thing that uh, an experienced coach can help with and that your run-of-the-mill kind of assembly line CSM yeah. doesn't, isn't equipped for, right? Okay. One of the things that – it doesn't happen as much anymore, but it seemed to me when I first got started that I would ask people questions, and the only way they could answer them was by quoting different Agile books. And I always wanted to Uh shake them and be like, I have all those books too. Like, I didn't ask you what Ron Jeffrey said. (laughs) I want to know what you think about it. And if they couldn't get to their own opinion, that was an indicator to me that they really weren't somebody that I was going to be able to learn about from on this particular topic. Yeah, I've I've experienced that too. Uh, When when I'm interviewing people for their coaching skills, I'll, I'll often ask them for a story. Tell me a story. Okay. From your experience, something that happened, whether it was good or bad. You know, whether it worked or not, doesn't matter. But just, you know, tell a story, how you reacted to it, 
what you did, what you learned from it, something like that. And they will just repeat a paragraph from a book. Really? They don't have and their I keep saying, own. I misunderstood the question. I was asking you for just a story from your own experience. Yeah. And very often, they don't have any. They don't have a story. And I don't know how you could be in this business for any number of years and not have any stories. Well, do you think it's that they don't have stories or that they're not able to pick through their own history and find the nuggets that they could use to teach other people or the nuggets that taught them? You know, I think we can tell a difference there because one person might just repeat things from a book. Yeah. And the next person might actually say, wow, it's really hard to answer that. There are just so many stories. And I don't know where to begin. What kind of a story would you like? Now, that's telling me that they have a lot of experience. They're trying to figure out what story to tell. But that's very different from just repeating canonical stuff. Yeah, okay. So do you find that, that journeyman, like the, in the way that Leading Agile is using it, is that something in your experience that is becoming a norm, that phrase? Or is it, I'm wondering if it's sort of like Shuha Ri where it's becoming a thing that people use almost to the point where it seems like most of them don't actually understand it anymore? Or is it just sort of a brand new thing that is taking root different ways in different places? Well, uh, I don't see it taking off that way, okay. like Shuhari or something like that. Uh, I found that when I joined Leading Agile with the mandate to build the technical practice, I looked for, for things that would help me do that, and I found this model to be useful. Okay. Uh, but I didn't really look to see if it was a popular buzzword, and I don't think it is particularly. There are some groups that use it. Uh, Pillar uses it differently than we do a little bit. Uh, Corey is using it. And, you know, it, it's not an unknown term, but it's not really super popular. Right. But it, but it, it, if you were in something more like a trade, it is a fairly standardized term outside of software, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, when we start talking about software craftsmanship, yeah. then people started to go things other examples of craftsmanship from the past. And I think that's where that sort of came from. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. So if somebody is, let's say that they're somewhere between, that they recognize that they're maybe somewhere between apprentice and practitioner, um, are there particular things, if they're trying to, de to develop their experience and level of expertise and to get to a journeyman state, is it really just putting in the time or are there certain things that you think they can do to try to grow their abilities there? Well, you can always put in time. And the question is, are you putting in the time doing things that help you? And, you know, you can bring in examples from other walks of life, like uh, martial arts or music or something like that. Yeah. You could practice your trumpet 10 hours a day, but if it was just random, you might not get anywhere. And right. I think the same applies to software skills. The, the fact that you're an apprentice means that there is somebody senior to you that you're working with okay. and they're helping you they're guiding you so it's not just you putting in time but it's kind of directed time yeah or guided time it's the guidance is important now do i want to spend 18 hours learning like a visual basic you know if i'm a beginner i don't really know which languages are going to be useful yeah. so i might pick that but if i had a mentor who was helping me he might say
really going to be very marketable for you. Why don't you pick something else, you know, JavaScript or something instead of Visual Basic? So that's kind of a very basic example, but um, there are a lot of little things all along the way where you can use a nudge in the right direction. Test-driven development is one of the things we emphasize a lot. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of nuances to that. And if you have a mentor who can help you get, get a sense of that and see how to get a lot of value from that technique, that's a lot different than if you just kind of struggle along on your own. Okay. So, or, so as a mentor, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you mentor other people, and I'm wondering if at what point during that path did you get to a state where you realized that in the mentor-mentee relationship that you're as much the mentee of them as they are of you? I mean, did that happen? Is that something that you would agree with or? Yeah, that does happen. I don't know that there's a, a kind of a mechanical way to say that, oh, now that you flip the switch. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a gradual shift and you both kind of know it. You, your relationship changes maybe without you even being aware of it. But yeah, that does happen. Okay, cool. This was really cool. Can I ask you two totally unrelated questions? <laughs> I can give you unrelated answers. Too. All right. So the first one is going back to something that I talk with Mike about. And I'm curious because you have such a different background than I do that I'm, I'm really excited to ask you these questions. Um, Mike and I were talking about his surprise at the fact that people who do what we do have not gone back and read all the source material, like all the original texts and things like that. And, and I mean, I, I have not read many of them. Um, I'm wondering from a developer's perspective, if how necessary you think that is. Like if I'm somebody who's just getting out of school and I'm trying to get a gig as a developer, do I need to go back and read or study older languages, you know, the very beginnings of object-oriented programming, all that stuff, the foundational stuff for Agile. Is that necessary, or can I just pick up where things are right now? Okay. Well, you really asked two different questions there. Okay. So one of them is, if I'm just coming out of school and looking for my first job. Right. So I would say, no, you don't need to know the whole history of everything. You just need to have some basic starter-level skills some awareness of things. But as you were saying, pick up where things are now. Yeah, that's perfectly okay. As you go forward in your, in your career, if you choose to become, you know, to aim for becoming a journeyman or a master, if, that, if you have enough interest to do that, what a lot of people call passion, which is yeah. a little bit of an overkill in my opinion. But if you're interested enough, uh, over time you're going to want to know where these things came from. And it becomes more important to know that as you go forward. I don't think you can really have a deep, comprehensive understanding if you don't know where things came from. Okay. All you're doing is kind of memorizing steps to follow. Okay. Which which doesn't really lead to you becoming a journeyman or a master. You, You have to internalize the concepts and the principles behind things. And that okay. takes time. I wouldn't expect someone straight out of school to be able to absorb all that. Yeah. Now, is there a, a, a parallel to Latin for software development? A parallel to Latin? Well, like I went to, I went to a Jesuit school and they made us take four years of Latin. And they're like, this is the most useful thing you're ever going to get. It's the foundation of everything. And I still am waiting for it to show up and be valuable. Um, but 
that that for a lot of people that is a really important thing. I mean, you've got Latin in your article. Is there for a software developer? Is there some a particular language that you know Latin or Greek that is foundational for everything else? Well, yeah, you know, until you asked just now, I had never thought of it that way. But I would think probably the language called Lisp, L-I-S-P. Okay. Probably a lot of programmers would would tell you, yeah, that's that's like a Latin or a Greek thing. Okay. For us, a lot of programming software development fundamentals came out of that, and a lot of other languages are partly based on that. Okay. So yeah, that's a that's probably a good one. Okay. Cool. Uh, you'd probably get some different answers from different people, but yeah, there, there's something like that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. All right. One more question, totally unrelated, and it's for a personal mission that I have. I am on a mission to try to get at least everyone who takes my classes to go back to work and create a definition of done. It is, I tell them it's this, you need a vision statement first, definition of done second. If you don't have this, nothing's going to work right. Uh, And I'm pretty kind of up on my soapbox about it lately, but I'm looking for different ways that people go about teaching this to other folks. So first question is, do you think it's absolutely critical? And second, if you go into an environment that doesn't have it, how do you walk them through setting one up? Okay. Well, uh, for the first question, yes, I agree that it is important to have a definition of done. Uh, I mostly work with the technical teams, but at each level, what we call program teams and, and all of that, portfolio teams, everybody needs to know when a piece of work is finished. And I don't know how you can ask somebody for an estimate or a size or a commitment if you can't give them a clear idea of what done looks like. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just open-ended. Now, if you look at it also from a lean point of view and look at metrics, if you, what I've experienced is if the team doesn't have a definition of done, then every story is just wide open. The stakeholders can just say, well, I'm not quite satisfied with this yet. Yeah, yeah. Go and tweak it some more. So when that happens, how do you know what your velocity is? How do you know what your cycle time is? And without knowing one of those, how do you forecast the team's performance for the next iteration? Yeah. So it's really critical to the whole model that people have an agreement about what done looks like. And if they need something more, that's great. That means they're paying attention to the results that they got, and they're thinking about what they need next. But that's a new work item, a new backlog item. Yeah. So we can control the start and end of discrete pieces of work. That way we have something to measure. Okay. And the teams have some point where they can stop and go have a beer. And they're not just constantly churning. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it is really important. Now, your second question was, how do you introduce that? Or how do I introduce it? Well, I just explained stuff like that, like I just did to you. Okay. I said, how do you guys feel? You never seem to be done with anything. Why is that? What can we do about that? I I tend to approach all these things from a practical point of view. Okay. What's the problem you're having? How can we alleviate that? Yeah. Very often, these so agile and lean practices fall into place, but I I don't usually begin with that. I don't start with the buzzwords. I start with the problems that the people are having and how we can solve them. And very often some of our familiar things that we learn 
from our agile training, uh, they do help solve those problems. So they do fall into place. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's that. All right. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Um, this was, this was great. If, if people want to get in touch with you and ask you more questions about this stuff, what's the best way for them to, to reach you? They can uh, write a note on a piece of paper and put it in a bottle <laughs> and uh, throw it in the ocean. Uh, oh, actually, uh, they, couldn't, uh, they could follow me on Twitter or something. You know, I have to pay attention to Twitter probably more than I should. Okay. All right. And what's your Twitter handle? I'll put it in the show notes, but just so that they can, can find you. Okay. Well, yeah, it's a very obscure one. It's Dave Nicolette. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. So I'll, I'll also include a link to your LinkedIn profile on your leading agile page too. Um, do you have any speaking engagements coming up or anything like that that people need to know about? Yeah. Uh, May 16th through 18th, agile and, and beyond in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Okay. And uh, then not too long after that, May 21st and 22nd, mile high agile in Denver. Cool. Awesome. That's all I have coming up. In all right. And they can also follow your, your blog posts and stuff on the Leading Agile site because you do post fairly frequently. Dave, thank you very much for taking time out. And thank you for being the last podcast I'm going to record in Oklahoma. I'm very psyched oh, about that. Oh, where are you going next? I'm moving to New York in two weeks, and you're the last one that I'm doing here. So thank you very much for wow. being my, <laughs> my last podcast in Oklahoma. Well, I hope they gave you a raise so you can actually afford to live in New York. They didn't, but I'm getting rid of a lot of stuff. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a nice, small, affordable place. <laughs> Good. Cool. Okay. Well, All right. I'll talk to you later then. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah.